Hello and welcome to the very first introductory episode of Reimagining Soviet Georgia. My name is Brian Gigantino. And I'm Sopo Japarize. Reimagining Soviet Georgia is a history initiative which aims to reimagine, reconceptualize, and rearticulate the history of the Soviet Union. It's 2021, and this year marks the 30-year anniversary of the USSR's end in December 1991, when millions of people woke up in new countries with poverty, ethno-national warfare, and social collapse there to welcome them. Winning the Cold War, the United States and their allies made promises of a better life to come, that a transition to the West would bring higher living standards, freedom, and democracy. Yet globalization and capitalist integration have not provided a better life for the majority of the region's working people. Low wages, exploitation, and demographic collapse have become the norm across the region. Yet despite this overall worsening of conditions, an entire apparatus of politicians, academics, NGOs, and others have worked tirelessly to institutionalize a narrow narrative about the history of the USSR, that it was a wholly negative project, and that it is to blame for the enduring issues of the former Soviet world. Even worse, elites throughout the former Soviet Union have used these same narratives to consolidate power across the territory. Meanwhile, Anyone who even remotely challenges these institutionalized narratives are vilified, marginalized, and undermined. Our goal is to challenge this monopoly over the USSR's memory and the telling of its story. Based in Tbilisi, Georgia, and with a focus on, the so on Soviet Georgia, our project will be to interrogate how and why anti-Soviet narrative came to be such a stronghold. We believe that countering it with real people's lived experiences and creating a people's history of the Soviet Union can help open up a space, a much needed space, to reassess this dominant misleading ideas about the Soviet past. Thank you to everyone who's listening because we do think this is a worthwhile history project that um, hasn't really been tried, definitely not in, in Georgia nor Soviet Georgia, though there have been amazing uh, historians recently who have revised certain histories, or let's say they have uncovered and actually used archives and spend a lot more time actually going through the facts instead of how they imagined them to be, which were most of the Soviet, his most of the historians that wrote about the Soviet Union often used imaginary numbers and imaginary tales. Um, so I think like a few things why it's so important to reimagine the Soviet Union um, is to not concede the largest and most ambitious socialist or communist project to the right-wing capitalists, because often in debates, uh, they'll say, the Soviet Union? That was, that was communism. And everyone will say, oh no, we don't mean that kind of communism. And then the whole thing is just like then arguing over details and the libertarian or the liberal or whoever sits on the other side has already won the debate because they have reduced it down to some kind of boogeyman that everybody concedes and says, yes, that's that's the bad guy. 
um, we also need to learn what to actually criticize. What are we actually criticizing when we're talking about the Christian Soviet Union? We can't just say like totalitarianism, authoritarianism, gulags, and that's it. That's like telling a story that's just like less than 1% of what really happened, right? And also, even how that is told is incorrect often. And that's the only way that everything is explained away is, is like a state. Using actually often what I've really noticed is using sci-fi novels, right? Dystopian novels seem to be really where the criticism of Soviet Union actually is. So this imagined, you know, 1984 or like other dystopias where people have tried to do the good thing, but they end up making an even worse place or um, they don't even try to do good thing. They just convince others. They're just like nefarious force that pretends it's good, that actually is hurting and harming people. And, and everyone is like a hundred percent ideologically like, you know, like what's it called? Like inculcated into this whole like system or something, something very silly, honestly, it's childish understanding of, of societies, of epics and so on. Um, we, when we criticize capitalism through its various periods, we never really make it that like a caricature, right? We study it seriously. Uh, our tradition is, as Marxists, as leftists has always been to criticize, not in a cartoonish way, but in a very systematic real way are what we are actually fighting against and how it works. In reality, what was so different about Marxism was that Marx was able to give us a thorough understanding of where capitalism was going and what capitalism was, while everybody thought it was just a brief project, a brief social moment that was going to be reversed with like movements against big industry and, and localism. But really we get where Marx explains that no, this is actually a pretty long project and it has a long way to go still before it exhausts itself and it cannot just go back to localism because it's completely fundamentally changed work and productivity and unleash the new wealth, material wealth. So in a way, like why it's important is for us to also examine thoroughly in a more or less, let's say, rigorous scientific way, um, to some level, but also just tell the story of, of the people, right? Uh, sort of people's history of the Soviet Union. Um, as well, I think it's important is that post-communist um, world, it is not only materially really backwards, as in has really, you know, de deregulation, like sort of savage capitalism that is unseen in any other country, um, the way it has been formed, but it's also incubating a lot of these really bad ideas, these radical free market fundamentalist ideas. It's attracting actually a lot of right wing freedom fighters of, of, you know, free markets where a lot of money's coming in here and it's being incubated. So that's also problematic and we should realize how to combat that because they also hold a lot of uh, social capital still in these places and Mostly they beat up on the Soviet Union as an example of why free markets and unregulated capitalism is good. So we have to have the, the right critiques, understandings to be able to even combat that. Also, growth of fascism. That's another thing that's tied to the Soviet Union. Because if you look at the example of Georgia, a lot of Georgians who were uh, living in Europe 
during World War II fought for the fascist side. They fought alongside Nazis. They were they had Nazi uh, units. So now the understanding is if Soviet Union was bad and Soviet Union won World War II, then it must mean that the fascists were good, <laughs> including all the Georgians that were fighting with the fascists because the Soviet Union was worse than fascism. And that's actually a dominant um, political ideology now among a like section of the youth. Um, and also just right-wingers like to use that, saying these, these people who fought with the fascists are now national heroes. They have been saved and, and brought back as, as great heroes. And also, of like, I don't want to say finally, because there's actually a million reasons why it's important, and we're going to uh, keep exploring them throughout these, uh, these episodes. But I would like to end with this on why it's important for the, for the world, right? International perspective is, I don't think we've ever really thought about how important Soviet Union was that existed for the capitalists to concede the welfare state. Like how much of a role did Soviet Union actually play into having, uh, you know, European welfare states or even having the New Deal and having, uh, you know, modicum of a welfare system in the United States? Because we see that once the Soviet Union is gone, most of these things are falling apart. The local domestic protest, though often they can be very strong, are failing are not strong enough to um, fight back and get those victories. They're mostly very defensive, if anything. I think one of the things that um, you know we want to take seriously too is the fact that the communist world and this former Soviet world um, now includes many, many, many independent nations that were once very much integrated with each other. And that when the Soviet Union collapsed, they lost not just actual material integration in the form of uh, trading routes, in the forms of pipelines, and other kinds of connectivities, but they also lost a shared universal project which connected each individual national identities to each other. And I think that our project being based in Georgia, maybe this is a question I can ask Sopo or want to know what Sopo thinks, but there's a particular way which being in Georgia, this is not Russia, this is not Belarus, this is not um, Ukraine, that Georgia has its own unique experience within the USSR, but at the same time has a very central position in that Soviet history. And so I'm interested in at least understanding what is it about this you know, the particular experience of Georgia and the USSR tell us about the USSR and what can the USSR tell us about, you know, modern day Georgia. And everything that um, Sopo is bringing up, I think, has been on steroids in, 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 in the Georgian experience, you know, in the sense of the post-Soviet transition being here being one of the worst, in the dominance of libertarian uh, market orthodox politics coming to be captivating political ideology or trying to like pedal on people here and get them to believe in unilaterally and that the anti-soviet narrative with the help of the united states and of the west 
has been very extreme here. So uh, maybe Sopo, just like, and if you could say a little bit about the role of Georgia in, in what you're saying. Um, I think Georgia being one of, sort of the most pro-West kind of places, at least like thought of, and also, you know, it's kind of contradictory because so Stalin's birthplace, right? And then there's very strong anti-Soviet stance as well because Georgia had a three-year independent socialist state besides um, Soviet Union. So having that kind of example, which is also rare for for others, for other states. And um, being, you know, Georgia wanting to be sort of the vanguard of the anti-Soviet coalition, if you want to say it that way. But, you know, Shevardnadze, one of the architects of Soviet Union's demise, is also Georgian. Um, and so there's like a lot of, let's say, lots of things are being connected back into Georgia. And Georgia's also become one of the most neoliberal slash libertarian, I call it a libertarian paradise here, because there is so much deregulation. I'm just example. I've recently started going to get even my nails done because I was afraid of getting hepatitis C. It was like a real problem with like very high numbers of hepatitis C. And now, well, now there's like treatments and so on, but it's so deregulated. Um, slowly with the new government there's like very very you know little regulations are coming back in and one of our most famous people in georgia is also libertarian you know he has like a huge sway over the youth while the youth in say the west are these very radical left-wing youth in georgia are really right-wing yeah it's actually very interesting i just want to add to that that georgia georgia's got you know it's very interesting how even in the post-communist world, there are major left-wing youth movements. But in Georgia, it seems like there isn't mass left-wing youth movements. The fact that Girchi or the Libertarian Party has uh, captivated the kind of rebellious youthful spirit here is pretty unique. It's like, <laughs> it's really terrible, actually. There's some like younger kids are very small amount, I would say, maybe through being exposed to sort of Western applications and social media um, are coming around. But I think even them are like, oh, but Soviet Union's bad. Like any kind of left that is being created still is very anti-Soviet. I would say that there sometimes they lean towards European uh, socialism, you know, some kind of social democratic socialists. Um we don't really have that many anarchists, really. There was a phase, but not really that much. And a lot of youth are actually fascists, like a lot of Nazi swastikas and very pro-Nazi youth. <laughs> that's that's really frightening. Um, or like, really, it's also a lot of the youth are, are leaving as well. So migration is a huge problem. I would say that's also a reason why a lot of the Maybe politically young people aren't quite as political because there's this constant flux of you know families being destroyed by migration and then then the kids try to leave as well to go to universities there and so on so there's a lot of things to consider but i think like as having a a country where it's i would say has adopted nationalism and seems like 
everyone agrees that nationalism is a natural universal good, yet constantly adopting neoliberal libertarian policies that undermine all of their nation building, if they even try to build the nation, um, is uh, also contradictory and interesting in their consciousness. And then there's just people that have been like silenced who are very pro-Soviet because they remember the Soviet Union you know, having a much better life and life being like colorful. So it's the opposite. It's like if we can think about like now it's like a black and white movie. Back then it was like a colorful movie, you know, like so it's it's actually reverse. Better life before, worse life now for a huge part of Georgians. And actually the numbers are growing everywhere. I think post-communist world of who has a better, you know, memories of the Soviet Union. So there was like, I think it was the lowest, I think early 2000s. I think once the really bleak days of the, the 90s was over, people thought that, oh, now it's going to get better because it's like capitalism is now finally being implemented correctly. And now we're going to have a great life. And that just did not come to fruition. I think, Brian, you want to talk more about that? There's a big divergence between what the mainstream anti-Soviet narratives are and how individuals actually remember their day-to-day life and what they did and how they did it when the Soviet Union existed. And this is across the post-Soviet world. But in Georgia, one of the things that I've come across is the fact that you have all these different people who have very um, robust and colorful, dense and detailed stories about their lives. But then in the political abstract, all it is, as was mentioned, it's reduced down to singular events, tragedies, or a kind of gray uh, mosaic of nothingness, right? There's no life. Even if those same people can tell you in one breath that Soviet Union was horrible, but the 90s were the worst time of our entire lives. There's an erasure going on of the real lived experience. And there's no way to connect that real lived experience to a politics or to a political conception of the meaning of the USSR across this post-Soviet space. And that's the major reason why we, through this project, Reimagining Soviet Georgia, while we're going to focus on Georgia, we're going to try to connect these oral histories and people's histories of the Soviet experience into a broader re-examination of the Soviet project. There's been a struggle, a political struggle, since the collapse of the USSR to institutionalize narratives about it. And I don't think that people are able or have been willing to take seriously this reality. I'll give you an example. In places like Georgia, right, there's a reason why at the universities there's not a focus on Soviet history. People, kids don't take Soviet history courses. There's a reason why in the center of Tbilisi there is a museum called the Museum of Soviet Occupation, just as there is in Latvia, just as there is in Ukraine, um, statues being erected to people who are um, part of SS units, you know, who are Ukrainian nationalist anti-Soviet soldiers, just as there are 
all sorts of what we call memory politics that are being weaponized and instrumentalized against any kind of nuanced um, engagement with the Soviet past. And so our modest proposition is that there needs to be a space opened up. And we think that maybe in Georgia, there are things that we can open up from our perspective here that we can then take and re- and use to sort of re-examine something about the entire Soviet project. And I think that the that the contradiction in Georgia, the distance that exists between the mainstream anti-Soviet narratives and the on-the-ground uh, ways in which normal people remember it is so stark and so extreme, more so than in other post-Soviet countries, I think, that it's actually navigating that distance that's going to allow us to really like open up, I think, some interesting conversations. Uh, I think what you said, Brian, was uh, very, very accurate and very good. Also, I think we are trying to think of the criteria we're going to use Mm -hmm. to like how to actually judge you know, how, how to actually think about how to rethink and reimagine the Soviet Union, what we're going to use. Because some of the things that I think about is how much, when I talk to people who've lived, uh, you know, through the Soviet Union, maybe like a lot, large chunk of their lives, how much they don't seem to hold any materialist point of view. I think like mm-hmm. I'm trying to understand it, but it's like, how they dismiss all material conditions and are these like essentialist idealists in their conception about everything like people don't need a home don't need food they don't need any of these things apparently to be great though while they have had soviet education soviet houses soviet you know vacations soviet everything that has made them who they are and have given them all the material um, wealth and means to achieve and become who they are, they dismiss all of that for someone else saying, oh, well, they could actually have done all of these things, right? Achieved, become a fully fledged person without any of those material means and, and wealth. So like having those discussions of, um, them not being able to understand process, right? Of like something becoming and how does one become any kind of way even having a brief understanding or a different kind of philosophical approach, maybe not a Marxist or a materialist approach, but anything. No, it's just pure like we are born great or bad. If we want to, it's all about willpower. We can achieve anything we need. And it's like, and I'm like, is this like post-communism that's like has seeped into their brain or, or is this a long-standing thing? Because, like, part of me thinks that because they have had uh, most of their lives, everything they've never really had to fight for, they actually don't understand what it's like not to have those things. So it's kind of like, you know, like when people say privilege, right? It's like you don't realize you have these things all the time with you. I'm going to start calling it Soviet Union privilege of <laughs> people who had free education, free houses, and so on. And they, they take it for granted 
You know, they take it for granted because they've never had to live without them. They've never had to figure out how to pay for rent like I have had my whole life or, you know, figure out how are you going to make ends meet or how you're going to get an education and how you're going, your profession might become obsolete and have to find another one and so on. So they're, they have so many um, blind spots that it's kind of incredible, you know? And I actually wondered, I remember being uh, shocked that one of the most like first postmodern novels were written in Georgia. And I was thinking postmodern, like how did, and I realized now I'm like, oh, postmodernism is that you had every material thing satisfied. And so you then only had time to think about things that were beyond that. That's when people become preoccupied with the, uh, you know, the, whatever the soul and the spirit and fantasies and 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 things like that because they weren't thinking about bread and butter issues because they had bread and butter what then ends up happening is talking about this like kind of people being raised in the ussr with and, and coming out of it with a kind of idealism because they had everything right so then of course these soviet raised people who become anti-soviet can't actually conceptualize how important the material basis of the USSR was for everything. It's actually quite interesting how there's no actually way to move outside of this idealist uh, framework that you've been talking about to make sense of the importance of the apartments that were free, the importance of the universal um, health coverage. Guaranteed jobs. Guaranteed jobs, right? Because, of course, it was impossible to conceive of a world without that. And um, I think that this particular issue, you can see how it manifests in a number of different ways in which these post-Soviet trained people in the post-Soviet world, they're navigating it. There's another thing, actually, which is, and this is another topic, is the way that the Soviet training trained uh, people to think about capitalism differently in the post-Soviet world, right? You can think about the ways in which, I know more about in the Russian context, but in the Russian context, their conception of how capitalism and democracy worked is very different. Even the ones who are a little bit ahead of the game, preempting its collapse and imagining about capitalism to come or whatever. But they have a very different way in which about how they think power does and should work, the ways in which capitalists should and do function, and the way in which um, you know accumulation should and would function. I'm sorry. Uh, it's an interesting point that we should also highlight, underscore, is that the idea was specific, and this was done on purpose, the conflation of democracy with capitalism. And this works both ways. So people thought that democracy meant capitalism and capitalism meant democracy. And also on a lot of people who do like the Soviet Union in a, you know, whatever understanding they have of it, they'll often say, oh, you see, democracy doesn't work thinking that's capitalism. So that actually is harmful for all audiences, both pro-Soviet and pro-capitalist, because they both have just, uh, you know, uh, incorrect understanding. But of course, not their fault. This was fed to them over decades and decades. And so much money was put in this propaganda that democracy equaled capitalism, which in fact, capitalism is absolutely antagonistic to democracy. And that's what I think is uh, interesting. The post-Soviet capitalists understand this. 
well, it's also any kind of criticism you ha- you can say to people here in Georgia, or and I'm assuming it's like that post-communist world. When you criticize today of what's happening, they'll say, oh, that's because we don't have correct capitalism mm-hmm. yet. And that's because this is of the Soviet mentality, because the Soviet Union's at fault still 30 years later. Everything they blame on the Soviet Union. And this is why instead of worrying about, you know, a third of the country leaving to go move to Europe or, or, or Russia because they cannot survive in this country. Instead of worrying about things like that, because that would make them question the entire premise of how they're trying to build this nation with neoliberalism. Instead of that, they still have event after event, book after book, film after film, song after song against the Soviet Union to make sure we never forget the totalitarianism that was the Soviet Union, always down our throats, constantly. And uh, and I think that in the Georgian context too, is you see the way in which the anti-Soviet narrative is so becomes so the anti-Soviet and the anti-communist narrative becomes so important that people are willing to undermine their own politics or arguments just to hold the anti-communist position. You know, for example, um, many Georgian nationalists will say that other Georgians, they'll say on one hand that someone is a Georgian if they speak Georgian or if they were born here, if they have a particular name, there's different different criteria, maybe a particular religion, but usually it has to do with language, right? And being of the place. And, but at the same time, Georgian Bolsheviks, Right or certain other people who were members of the Soviet apparatus will be excluded or not considered Georgian by virtue of being their political position. Right. This is what you know. I mentioned this museum of Soviet occupation does a very extensively to say that people like you know Stalin, people like Orzhonikidze, or, or or other Georgians are actually not real Georgians. So their definition of Georgianhood becomes something else. I think another interesting thing is, um, and we've talked about this before, is there's a lot of talk about things like national sovereignty. The Soviet Union was a colonial project, was an imperial project. But then, of course, if you actually start, and they, so these same people will then talk ad nauseum about the independent Menshevik control of Georgia between 1918 and 1921. But then the minute that you start talking to them, there was even, again, an article recently read where um, to them, one of the critical pieces is the fact the West supported it, that British supported the, the independent Georgia, and there was a dependency on the West. So it's actually not about sovereignty. It's not about uh, a national autonomy. It's not about charting a new course or a unique course for Georgia. It's about uh, an anti-Bolshevik conception. It's about an anti-communism, and it's about a particular narrative of Westernization um, that people want to say is an inherent quality of the Georgian na- nation, Georgian national traditions, right? Without any consideration for how that itself was actually contested politics. And they're not actually talking about the real issues they say they are. So I think another important thing that I wanted to bring up was how 
this anti-communism is so deep in people's minds that they can't that they're actually having a hard time formulating their own their own their own positions on politics because they're so focused on the anti-communism and it's actually in for lack of a better word infecting the actual so you want to talk about a uh, mentality that's actually holding hostage people in places like georgia and the post-soviet world it's the same uh you see this in ukraine a lot you see this in a lot of other countries right where the anti-soviet narrative has gotten so extreme that people are willing to throw out the window kind of rational nuanced debate right they're willing to throw out the window um more nuanced conversations just to hold that line. And I think in Georgia, I find that to be um, really extreme. And that's one of the reasons why I think uh, with our project, by focusing on getting people's real lived experiences, you can start to actually unpack um, and wade through or undo or you know cut away some of that like anti-communist hysteria, which I think um, clouds people's intellectual, rational, and um, ability to inquire. But what's actually interesting is that this also breeds self-hatred. Yeah, absolutely. Like, Georgians hate themselves so much. They think that they are backward, there's something wrong with them, they're unable to be progressive and uh, civilized, and they blame a lot of it on the Soviet Union. There's like a two, like it's a two countries that's happening. One is like they blame it on the Soviet Union that the reason they're backward, they could have been European, you know, they could have been like Germany, and the Soviet Union like held them back, right? Like this understanding was also like we are not able to ever do the right thing because we are traitors and we are lazy and we can never ever be as great as as Europeans are, and. And being ashamed of Stalin, right? Like Stalin. So, you know, we are embarrassed that we are part of this loser project, like the Soviet Union. And like, we couldn't be as, as wonderful as the Europeans. And we are like, you know, Stalin was a murderer. So therefore, therefore we are like uncivilized. And this is happening at the same time where they never ever question any of, you know, uh, Western imperialism. Um, capitalism's death toll and how much it has robbed, you know, the, the earth and people from their, from their wealth, how much it's dispossessed them. And so there's this only like we have to like feel guilty and apologize somehow for Stalin to like Germans, <laughs> you know, it's like, or, or Italians or whoever you want to pick. And this, this feeling that we are, we are backwards because of that. And they somehow never ever use the same lens that they use on themselves or Soviet Union and paint it and never forgive anything, right? Not even forgive. I don't think we should forgive, but I think never actually put them in context. But yet always give the benefit of the doubt to Europeans because at the end of the day, they're the victors, right? They won. They're the winners. So everybody wants to be associated with the winners and they are ashamed of their of their past and th- there's there's like a, a never-ending list of ironies um, as you know uh, one of the Soviet soldiers to fly the Soviet flag over the Reichstag when they finally took when the Soviet Union finally took Berlin was himself from Georgia so in the in he's from he's Megrelian based from Georgia and so the irony that 
um, just like you said, this compounding shame of being part of the USSR, producing Stalin, producing Beria, whatever. Yet at the same time, and, and also deferring to the to the greatness of Europeans. Yet it's actually the the important role Georgians themselves played in saving Europe from fascism, or the important role that Georgians played. And this is another thing, which is another thing I really always like to say. It's because what Sopo said is totally right. But there's, but the, but there's this. This, again, this irony is the only word I can I can think of, which is the, the important role that Georgians played in the Soviet project, which was you know, this great world power. The important role that Georgians played, 700,000 of them fought in World War II. Um, and that the Soviet Union afforded Georgians the opposite of the ways in which they remember it, not this kind of shameful, uh, you know, kind of embarrassing thing, but actually was a mechanism for unleashing a lot of, you know, not to fall into the nationalist narrative myself, but greatness of the of, of Georgia and Georgian people, you know? It actually was a tool for unleashing so many things, the same greatnesses which people can't, you know, erase in their own memory. And so um, to me... Uh, that is one of the, you know, the very, very, uh, other critical pieces, which is to say that when this history is erased and when the history is, you know, imagined as colonial or imperial or an imposition, you also have to erase all of these wonderful, great things that people from in Georgians themselves, people who were born and raised in Georgia, uh, you know, did. You know, and a number of people were, we're talking about artists, engineers, scientists, right? Um, or, you know, those who popular, I mean, or those who were popularizing, um, Georgian cuisine throughout the Soviet Union, whatever. There's different, you know, things that Georgians were, were doing and making and creating. Well, I think like we can also argue, and I think we're going to have a whole, you know, maybe a couple of podcasts on this is that really, Georgian nationalism, Georgianness is the strongest during the Soviet Union. It's it's uh, encouraged, supported financially, materially, and so on by the Soviet Union. So a lot of the nationalism is engineered as a product of the Soviet Union right. being encouraging. So without that, and especially even like if you look at like how much population exploded, and even like uh, positions of power, and on and so on, like. So Soviet Union is the is the reason why a lot of this nationalism exists um, to only to you know be then undermine the entire Soviet Union project. But also just reminds you of like even Georgians winning a lot of championships like worldwide um, under the Soviet Union, and that was like one of the one of the people you know people get upset about this was that oh we could have won those with our name so we had to be part of the soviet union and get those medals under the name of soviet union when it should have been like our name georgian name right and it was like we gave our name to russian soviet union being conflated with ussr mm. sorry um with russia is also a problem and so it's like oh the russians then used our talent and won with our with our skills well we should be looking at it like Actually, because of the Soviet Union, you had all the support to even get to a championship and win. 
without that, you might have not even had a chance, right, to even get up there. And also, the Soviet Union was an international project. Sure, it had uh, it had multi ethnic, you know, ethnic project. Um, sure, it had again problems, and we'll talk about them. But it was not a just a clean cut Russification project, right? And definitely, Georgians played a huge part and were very much empowered by it. You know, um, I want to connect what Sopo was just bringing up with um, what she was talking about at the very beginning, which is that the USSR and state communism, and especially the USSR, had global implications. Um, and again, this is, uh, you know, had global implications. The anti-colonial movements, anti-imperialism, um, throughout the world, uh, many, many, many of these movements, if not a vast majority, were either directly inspired by Marxism or had some relationship with communist state. Um, and the Soviet Union was a huge sponsor, uh, both rhetorically in terms of, you know, developing a propaganda line of politics, but also materially providing arms, providing funds to anti-colonial struggles and anti-imperial struggles around the world. And one of the things that I'm interested in talking about in this podcast, and again, one of the many episodes I think that we will do is that, you know, there was a domestic a domestic internationalism within the Soviet Union and then a socialist internationalism outside of it to which it was able to engage with. And I think that one of the interesting things about the Georgian perspective and about talking about Georgia and nationalities and this question of was the, how was the Sovietization processes of non-Russian areas of the Russian Empire um, not whole-scale Russification? And how was Sovietization actually something wholly different than what the Russian Empire had been doing? And this is, an, this is a question we can investigate later, but I think that what's interesting to think about is how these internal dynamics of the USSR in terms of the national question, the development of nationalities, and the substantial shifts of the condition of, say, Georgians or other national minorities um, national groups is maybe a better word to use within the Russian Empire changed in the Soviet period, how these national groups were actually empowered. And what does that actually tell us then about these struggles for national liberation around the world, the ways in which Marxism is an inspiring uh, ideology or related to it, the Soviet project related to places like Cuba or related to places um, in Africa and in, in Latin America. And I think actually um, one of the big, you know goals that uh, I, I have for this project is to is to think about what is it about the Georgian story, for example, that can be connected to in real in, in a real way. For example, Georgian engineers going to meet uh, African engineers uh, who are in socialist countries in Tanzania or in Congo or some of these places, Egypt, Egypt, right? And in what way was there a connection between the quote unquote the periphery? 
you know, of the Soviet Union, the non-Russian periphery of the Soviet Union, and the third world struggles or the struggling people, right? There's a lot of literature and a lot of historians who talk about how, for example, you know, African Americans, you know, who couldn't get jobs after their uh, getting engineering degrees from HBCUs. Some of them went to Tashkent, Uzbekistan and helped develop the cotton industry. You know, you had this inner or the, or third world movie producers who were, you know, going to Central Asia and other, uh, and other places for, um, um, these, these, uh, third world film festivals. We know about these, but I think that places like Georgia, right? There's less, um, investigation of some of these connections. Um, just to bring it back to the, to the international list context of the Georgian condition. That's actually an interesting point that I'm thinking about, which is during the Soviet Union, besides the West, right, Europe and the US, the rest of the world was open to Soviet Union. Like all this new information, all this um, opportunities to even, you know, if you were an engineer, doctor, whatever, to go abroad and so on. And also just regular people could travel within Soviet Union um, very cheaply and meet all these other people. And so the this idea that Soviet Union was um, not allowing right people to leave right this was the, they were sequestered is actually interesting because the same people that could travel very cheaply all over the Soviet Union had abilities and um, to do even more than that like I know a lot of people who went to Egypt and so on now that that's gone and we have even now visa liberalization state with Europe is like through three months easy to go with the last few years we've had that so those people now cannot afford to go anywhere right. <laughs> so like this new openness so-called capitalism was supposed to bring that you can go anywhere has actually limited the world to more people i mean i'm actually i would say i don't know more people but i'd say a huge you know chunk of of the population is now actually living in georgia so their world got way smaller than it was while for very few elites if you can see the visa liberalization numbers how many people actually used the ability to travel to europe it is insignificant it's very small compared to the population i was actually shocked myself to how much people cannot leave and i remember doing like um, I was doing um, door-to-door knocking, talking about pensions, and this one woman, she, uh, you know, I asked her, I was like, so what do you think about new visa liberalization laws? And she said, she goes, I don't have money to go to the center of town. I don't care about those laws. They mean nothing to me because I can't even access the little that I had, I had before. And that's actually another segment of People not being able to see each other as often because they feel that they are so poor. So often, like a lot of, especially women will say, I don't visit as much anymore because I don't have money for a little bit of chocolate to take them or for others to come over because their house may need remodeling and they may not have a lot of money for, you know, having um, food and being a, being a good hostess, let's say, um, because hosting is very important. So, the world now actually did the opposite, limited the world, including both domestic and 
and and abroad for a lot of Georgians, and I would say probably the same for most post-communist world. While it did give access, it really is the the revolution of the one percent, right? It has that one percent now who has you know Chanel and they can go to Paris every weekend. It's not like oh, it's so cheap now and go to Portugal every weekend in Paris, and they do. They did win that one percent who could have done better, right? Who could have had better and I mean like more material wealth than they did say in the Soviet Union but for the rest of us we were actually quite limited our worlds are in both our worldview and our material wealth has declined yeah I definitely was looking for the numbers but I can't find it right now but I was actually shocked two things I remember one my first time in Georgia I remember asking a woman who ran a small shop whether or not the USSR was better than post-Soviet Georgia and her response was well the world got smaller and she literally said this to me the world got smaller and I said the world got smaller and she said can you imagine my son lives in St. Petersburg and I need a visa to go visit him. I can't even enter uh, a neighboring country without a visa. And of course, you know, there are geopolitical tensions which had made the visa regime worse. And that's another, you know, a conversation to be had. But I think the important thing is that in her imagination and in her reality, the ability to travel was far limited. I think the second thing to add to what is being said is that, you know, what happens is that these visa liberaliz- things like visa liberalization in the European Union are going to be peddled to people in terms of opening up a freedom, the opening up of uh, opportunity and possibility. But what we notice is that there's no political economic analysis of what comes along with it, why this is being done. Um, it's just framed in terms of being a freedom, uh, free initiative of freedom, you know, to open up possibility. But then shortly thereafter, of course, um, you have politicians like, uh, you know, leader or de facto leader of the Georgian dream, Bidzini Ivanishvili, in front of the whole country saying things like, um, you know, we can't create enough jobs here for you. You have to go overseas. You have to go to Europe to find them. Literally saying this like it's a good thing. So... We, you know, there's no, there, there has to be, I think, another important reason why assessing and analyzing the USSR and really getting into the nitty gritty of what people's lives were like is that it's able to contextualize better and more clearly some of the dynamics that are going on today. One of those, and there's many things that we have mentioned, but one of those is the state and the society cannot provide the working population with enough resources to have a dignified life, um, to have a basic, ba- and I'm not talking just, I'm talking a basic income, no income they can't even provide. They're saying that they don't have enough, uh, uh, they don't have the capacity to have two million, I think it's right, it's two million jobs, something like that. There's some 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 insane number, million, like, you know, saying that there's, you know, we have a shortage of the amount of jobs that we can provide. I'd have to look up the exact numbers. Um, but the fact that, you know, the most powerful person in the country is actually saying this live on television, you know, is and live to the, to the country is 
very shameful. And I think that when we understand how jobs and meaningful work was actually provided for people, how in the Soviet era, these kinds of things um, take on a different resonance and tell us a little bit more about what has changed and not changed uh, since then. So instead of like going on about many reasons why this project is important, and as I've said before, and as Brian said, really dozens and dozens of reasons, um, I think we should, we're going to get more into through as this series um, goes on uh, around concrete topics and an attempt to exhaust each topic as best as we can. Um, we have an English version, which is this one, and we're going to have a Georgian version as well, because we're attempting to do this both for international audiences and also for Georgians. Um, and we're going to do, like, I think, series. So, like, take, as I said, like a topic and exhaust it. And we're also going to have in the English part, um, hopefully, a lot of interviews with really important historians and writers that are doing the work that we are suggesting needs to be done. They're already doing it. And so stay tuned for having important people and interesting people who force us to re-examine and reimagine Soviet Georgia. Uh, I just also, yeah, I think that one, one thing I want to mention is that there's a lot of people who, I want to say that what, some of the things that we're saying take as a given, take as just common sense, but we're up against such a massive uh, propaganda machine ideological into communism that it's difficult to even get some of these basic ideas out there. So we're going to do, we're going to try to hold interviews with authors, historians, other people who can lend us perspective on some of these issues and help us um, approach them with more nuance. But what I think the, you guys, the audience will find most interesting is that there are people who have dedicated their whole lives to the study of history right, to the study of the Soviet past that would agree with their basic premises, who are taken seriously in Georgia even, but the the aspect of um, seeing the Soviet Union in a more nuanced light is completely erased or undermined because um, of forces at play that benefit from it. Um, and I think one of the goals that we also have with this project will be to expose some of those key players that reproduce these narratives and how they stay in uh, doing so. Yeah, and I think like again, we, we're going to end on this one thought that Soviet Union really was a, a huge endeavor of remaking humankind. It cannot and should not be dismissed like that. It's just a failed authoritarian project. We owe ourselves, our, who are involved in sort of emancipatory politics, we owe them and us a much, a much better understanding. And also, this is a way to think things through about the courses we take in life and things that we fight for. And so, and all those millions of people that believed in this project, that died for it, that worked their whole life for it, to respect those comrades, maybe they also had some ideas that we never thought about. I'm just thinking about it. We should at least entertain some of those ideas and 
things that they did and learn as well how to judge something or what terms or what is a success what is a failure what is something we can learn from even though it might not be success or a failure i think soviet union is kind of like that for me it's, but it's the most important thing because it has shaped everything it's in the past over 100 years now so stay tuned and listen to listen to our series on reimagining soviet georgia thanks for checking us out more coming soon we promise Thanks for checking us out. More coming soon. We promise.